0: Friends, welcome back to another episode of the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and this is episode number 74. And it's the last episode of the year, the last episode of 2019. uh, As we move into 2020, Um, a new year, new things, new stuff, all good things. But I'm excited because this past year has been... Oh Man, this past year has been interesting for me Um, in the podcast. We've had a lot of stuff that we've covered. We've covered a lot of ground. We've had very interesting guests um, join us. Brian McLaren, uh, Pete Ends, Kent Dobson, uh, Colby Martin, all sorts of people talking about all sorts of things. I've learned a lot. I hope you have learned a lot as well. Thank you for joining me. Uh, It has been a boatload of fun, and um, I look forward to to the next 74 episodes that we're going to do uh, together for sure. Lots of highs this past year. The biggest one for me has been this last couple of weeks. Uh, We did a donation uh, for Christmas where we uh, asked all of our listeners, all of you guys, to send in some money uh, that we could then use to go out and buy some products uh, for the homeless people in our community. So there's a woman uh, who lives in town who will fill up her car with stuff that homeless people need. Uh, Toilet paper, non-perishable foods such as chips, uh, beef jerky, um, saltines, crackers, all sorts of different things. And she fills the stuff up in her car, toys for kids, soap, shampoo, body, all stuff that people need. Fills up her car and lets these people come and take whatever it is that they need. These people live like five, six miles from our house. A lot of them live in parks, she said, under bridges. And uh, they are grateful for everything that they that they get. She said, like, when it comes to toilet paper, uh, some of them will actually kiss the toilet paper. And they won't fight over it, but they'll actually share it with each other uh, so they don't have to use leaves to clean themselves. I mean, these, these are real things that are happening. And this woman is on the ground being the literal hands and feet of Christ. And so for Christmas this year, we wanted to Uh, help her fill her car, stuff her car, so to speak, so she could then go out and do what she's doing um, and just keep on on doing it with uh, the items that we were able to give her. So uh, anyway, thank you so much to everybody who gave. We collected $700, bought tons of stuff for her. She actually had to bring in another friend to load up their car as well because we had so much stuff she couldn't fit in her car. Uh, It was awesome. Uh, We got to talk to her for a little bit, hear her story. Uh, and it's just really, really encouraging, very inspiring woman, and uh, perhaps we'll have her come on the podcast one of these days and uh, share some of her story um, with, with us. So again, thank you so much for your donations, for your generosity, for your love. Um, it is going a long, long, long way. Uh, this though, like I said, episode number 74, and today we're sitting down with a guy named Philip Jenkins, who is a professor at Baylor University. And he's going to talk to us about his book called The Lost History of Christianity, uh, subtitled The Thousand-Year Golden Age of the Church in the Middle East, Africa and Asia, and How It Died. One of the things I've been super fascinated with over the last, I don't know, maybe like six months, and a lot of it had to do with this book, is the Church of the East. Now, I'm not a historian. I don't know this stuff at a very deep level. I'm still at a very surfacey level. This is all new stuff for me. But what I'm learning is that the church, the early church, has its roots not in the West but in the East. So the church that you and I are part of, if you're in the U.S., uh, the church as we know it kind of stemmed out of like Greece, Rome, very intellectual type stuff. Uh, the Eastern church, the church... Of the East is where the, the early church actually has its roots, so Asia, Africa, very different realm, very different way of thinking, very different way of doing things, and that church is still very much alive um, today, but yet it has died off at the same, at the same time, so it's not as vibrant, well-known, so to speak, as what we know of in, in the West. So anyway, he talks to me all about this kind of stuff. He's super smart, has a wealth of knowledge about this stuff way over my head. Uh, but I think I held my ground fairly well in the conversation. I think I asked him some pretty good questions. He gave me some terrific answers, a lot to think about. It's a short conversation. We're talking like maybe 30 minutes, uh, but he jammed a lot of information in here and I think gives us a whole lot to think about. Uh, a couple things real quick, patreon.com slash whatifproject. If this has encouraged you, inspired you, you want to make an end-of-the-year Uh, donation, so to speak. You can go there uh, to support the show financially. Uh, You you have different tiers. Pretty cool. You have different tiers to choose from, anywhere from $3 a month up to $30 a month. Uh, Every tier has its own reward. So whether it's a bonus blog post every week, um, it's a bonus podcast episode every uh, other month, it's a book I send you in the mail every quarter, everybody gets something, Uh, everybody gets a gift, everybody gets... Uh, a little something exciting. So go check it out, patreon.com slash project. We have about 26 people right now uh, who are giving, uh, 26 patrons. And uh, thank you. If you're listening to this right now, thank you so much uh, for your generosity, for your love. It has gone a long way. Uh, the money goes to support the show in the sense of uh, paying for the hosting fees, for the blog, for the website, uh, for the podcast, so we can keep this thing on the air, up and running, Um, Also helps me pay for my ticket to the Wild Goose Festival that I go to every year, uh, which is kind of a gathering of progressive thinking, spiritual-minded people where we come together and we brainstorm about how to make a bigger difference in the world with the love of Christ. So thank you again for your generosity in that and for showing your love and your support. And secondly, lastly, the What If Project community is a place where you can go uh, to find more people who maybe like you are wandering through the wilderness of their faith, trying to figure out what they believe, why they believe it, where they're at, maybe rethinking their faith, wondering uh, who God is, what God is about, what's the Bible, how do we use it, all those different things, Uh, kind of a a wilderness type place, so to speak. So if you feel uh, like you're I don't know, outside of the camp of your tribe, rethinking some things and wondering if you're all alone out there. Uh, You are not. So stop by the What If Project community. We would love for you to come in there and share your thoughts, your ideas, your journey. Uh, Everybody's in there in a different place, doing different things, having different experiences, and we're all cheering each other on. So all the links to those things will be uh, in the show notes, some pictures uh, from the, the donation thing that we did for Christmas. uh, I will put those on the What If Project Facebook page so you can go and check those out um, as well. And all of that to say, uh, again, this is episode number 74, the final episode of 2019, and it's my conversation with Dr. Philip Jenkins. Enjoy.
1: Times come I know Your boy is almost grown So I'm moving
0: up. And hey everybody, welcome back to the What If Project Podcast. Uh, it is great to have you here. Uh, today we are joined by one of my favorite authors and thinkers, Dr. Philip Jenkins. Uh, Dr. Jenkins is a professor and author of many books. Uh, my two favorite being The Next Christendom. And the one we're going to talk about today, The Lost History of Christianity. So, Dr. Jenkins, thank you for joining me on the podcast. It's great to have you here.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Absolutely. So, uh, I was introduced to your writing back in uh, seminary when I took a directed study, and it was geared towards uh, more progressive thought within the context of Christianity. And the professor assigned one of your books to me, and I recommended a bunch of others. And uh, the more I read your stuff... Uh, the more fascinated I am, because honestly, you've opened up really an entire world for me that I didn't really realize existed. So uh, thank you very much for, for what you do. And I've heard much of the same from other people who have read your stuff. So thank you. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, before we get into all of that, though, uh, for people that maybe don't know you or don't know of you, can you take a few moments to maybe share with us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? What do you do? What makes you tick? Sure. All that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, I came. Uh, I, I grew up in uh, Great Britain. I came to the United States in uh, in 1980. So I've been here uh, a very long time. Uh, I work on a variety of different uh, fields and topics. But for the last uh, 20 years or so, I've mainly been working on different kinds of uh, history of Christianity uh, topics. Um, You mentioned the book, The Next Christendom, that was kind of a watershed for me. Uh, I I was writing there uh, about the drift of Christianity, the spread of Christianity to the uh, global stage, particularly in uh, Africa, Asia, Latin America. And that then led to several other uh, projects uh, growing off from that, like about uh, the way the Bible is interpreted in those newer global South churches And especially the um, uh, earlier history of the uh, uh, of the Grover Church. Um, As to what I've done, I taught at uh, Penn State from Mm -hmm. 1980 through 2011. And since then, I have been a full time professor at uh, Baylor University in Texas. Hmm.
0: What are your, uh, out of curiosity, what are your favorite classes to teach in school?
2: Yeah most of what I'm doing is uh, is more research than teaching but the last couple I've been doing one is a global christianity course which uh, a graduate course which is useful because that gets to survey the uh, latest literature as it uh, comes out and uh, another thing I've worked on a lot is very recent american history so I just published a book on the history of the US since 2000 hmm. And I uh, I, I teach a course on what is called the late modern American history. And I don't like the phrase, but it's the standard one. Uh,
0: It just means very recent stuff. Okay. Uh, Are you working on anything currently?
2: Yeah, I'm doing a book that should be out next year on uh, demography and religion. Uh, The argument being that um, fertility rates are a very good, very accurate predictor of uh, religious change, decline, secularization. And what's particularly interesting about that is that um, low fertility societies tend to be less religious, tend to be much more secular. And just in the last five to 10 years, the U.S. has been heading decisively in that demographic direction. So the question then arises, does secularization follow around the corner? So that's the theme of that book.
0: Okay. And what about, is that coming out, do you think? That ballpark time? Uh, should be next fall, uh, fall of 2020. Okay. Well, we will be on the lookout for, for that. But today I want to talk to you about, uh, like I said, the book, The Lost History of Christianity. And uh, for our listeners, the subtitle is The Thousand-Year Golden Age of the Church in the Middle East, Africa, and Asia, and How It Died. And so the first question I kind of want to lob at you is, Uh, why is it important for Christians in particular to realize that uh, Western Christianity as we know it today and like your typical North American evangelical church isn't necessarily the only Christianity out there or even the oldest uh, Christianity? Like, why is it important to be aware of the Eastern tradition of the church?
2: The best argument I would give for that is that um, whether they know it or not, everyone already has a historical framework for the church. Hmm. Um, and they know, for example, uh, if, if you've ever seen like a, a documentary on uh, a history channel of discovery or whatever, uh, you know how Christianity spreads from um, the Holy Land to the Mediterranean to Europe, then it reaches uh, uh, North America. And that's, if you like, the logical direction of Christian history. Um, maps don't lie, but they don't tell the full truth. A map Mm. like that does not show the fact that in the exact same years the Christianity is heading west from the Holy Land, it's also spreading east and south and southeast. And in fact, for a very long time, probably for the first thousand years or so, it's actually more successful in those non-European directions than it is in, um, in Europe itself. So it's not so much that I'm saying, you know, here is a new history. What I'm saying is, um, the history you probably assume um, uh, ain't necessarily so. Hmm. Uh, so uh, that, that's my uh, uh, that's my argument there. Um, when you do that, uh, you realize that there's just such a huge amount of Christian history outside Europe. You know what I always say is, um, in the first thousand years, Christianity has four main languages: uh, Latin, Greek, Coptic. And Syriac, and by far the least important of those is Latin. Hmm. Uh, wh- whereas you know, when we tend to write the history of the Church as it appears in Europe, we always write it as if what we know in later years had always uh, been uh, been true. Uh, you know, if I hadn't believed it, I wouldn't have seen it with my own eyes.
0: Hmm. Why is it that, like, I went to I went to seminary. I took multiple rounds of history of Christianity classes, and although they they always touched on some of the Eastern stuff that was never ever magnified to the extent that it is, especially in your book and now elsewhere that I'm reading. Why, why is it that the so much emphasis is placed on the West and the East is kind of pushed off to the side?
2: It's partly a question of um, available resources. Hmm. And if you think of it, that's also a self-feeding process. So it's Textbooks are not available and out there, therefore people don't teach it, therefore people aren't interested, therefore there are no textbooks. Mm. Uh, So it's like a a, a vicious uh, circle. And it is possible to break that. So, for example, over the last 20 years, uh, you now have a huge range of um, books available on global Christianity as it is today. 20 years ago, there absolutely uh, were uh, were not. So that that can be done. people often make um, statements about the church did X, the church does X, Christians believe X. What I'm trying to do is to get people to think and say, well, you know, which which bunch of Christians are you talking about? Are you talking Mm. about the ones in, you know, the United States and decreasingly in Europe, or are you talking worldwide? Because when you look worldwide, um, whether you're looking at the present or the past, uh, those statements look very
0: different. Hmm. I think it's even, even like our Bibles are different. I think that's another thing that you brought out in your your book is that a lot of the Eastern traditions have Bibles with more books included. That's something else I didn't realize. Yes, to different
2: uh, degrees. I mean, the most extreme example is the Ethiopian uh, church, which has which was cut off from the West, or the West was cut off from it, depending on how you look at it. And they preserve a very early sense of what, what the biblical book should be, and that's a much larger one than we would have today. But uh, you know that that's not just an Eastern Church thing. For example, if you were to go down the road to your local Roman Catholic church, you would find um, a lot of books in the Old Testament as canonical books, not just as apocrypha, that are not in the uh, New International Version. Hmm. Um, so w- worldwide. Uh, the standard Protestant Bible is actually a minority uh, version in that it doesn't include as fully canonical books like uh, uh, Wisdom, Sirach, the the books of Maccabees, which more or less every other church outside the Protestant tradition treats as fully canonical. Hmm. And, And that's kind of an instructive lesson. You know, if you talk to somebody about biblical literalism, a very good question is so which Bible do you think is literal?
0: Yeah, it's like uh, when people talk about the Bible, even when we talk about you know about following following Christ, it's like which which Christ are we following? Which <laughs> traditional Christ are we are we talking about? Right. Yeah. So I realize your whole book is kind of about this, but what would you say to somebody who might make an argument that you know like well the Eastern Church can't possibly be all that important because if it was it wouldn't have died like you know God is is fighting on behalf of his church and it's the church in the West that has become, you know, this massive thing. So obviously like we have it right. So to speak, like our traditions, our doctrines, our theologies, like how would you respond to that? And I asked that because I actually came across someone who I posted a quote from your, your book. And that was one of the things that they said to me was, you know, while well, the church in the East is obviously almost non-existent. So really it's the West that's important. So how would you respond to somebody yeah. like that?
2: In terms of the uh, balance of numbers balance of influence in um, say the last five hundred years, uh, you know that that is correct in the sense that if you have maybe and i'm just making up the numbers right here mm. if you have five hundred million Christians in the west and you have two million in the east, well numbers aren't uh, everything but they uh, they aren't nothing that's a very important thing but mm. by the same uh, token. If you go back, say, to the 11th or 12th century, there are probably about as many Christians in Asia as they are in, um, in Europe. They've got uh, much stronger intellectual traditions um, and, and, uh, and so on. They've got very strong spiritual uh, traditions. And by any rational grounds, they are as important then at that time. And when you look at earlier, eras, that's even more true. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, it, it, um, uh, it depends when you're, uh, uh, when you're asking, the obvious question is, uh, you know, important, uh, important to whom, um, how can you tell? And that, that's an, another interesting lesson. If your church is around today and it's so strong and thriving, are you absolutely sure it's still going to be dominating the world in another 200 years? Mm-hmm. Um, You know, once upon a time, the the Church of the East was the uh, largest and most influential church, and now it's a tiny, tiny remnant. If you look at other denominations like, and I just make this up, Methodism Hmm. or Baptists, I mean, uh, can we be absolutely sure that in 200 years that they will still be world-spanning churches? I certainly hope so, Hmm. but uh, can we be sure?
0: Hmm. I think, too, a lot of times people don't realize how much how much politics went into um, like the growth of the, of the church, especially the western church, and i I learned that a lot from your book, like just looking at things like Constantine and all those different kind of characters that kind of came into play that there's a, a, a large large realm of politics mixed up in all of this
2: sure, and the question then um, arises, is something, if you have a change, like a new statement of theology, or something about the nature of Christ, for example, um, then there are different views. Somebody might say, well, see, this is, uh, this is just secular politics, and then religion bounces uh, off that. Uh, or do you say that uh, there's a providence underlying that and uh, people may think they're pursuing their political agendas, but there are higher forces uh, uh, guiding them? How do you uh, explain that? And then to take the other side of that, if a church in a particular country or a particular region is very, very strong and very powerful, and then it's destroyed and literally ceases to exist, how do you explain that? I yeah. mean. You might say, it's just politics, you know, uh, an army lost this battle, there was a particularly vicious conqueror, he destroyed the church in that region, that's fine. Or do you say, uh, but how on earth do you fit providence and divine will and divine rule into that? Mm. And that is a very interesting question. Uh, (laughs) Does God allow his faithful churches to cease to exist? And that's a very potent question.
0: So, I want to read a a quote for you from the book and then ask you to expound on it uh, a little bit. You say a modern Christian who was transported back in time to the Near East of the sixth or seventh century would be struck at the many resemblances between the Christianity of that time and the modern world of Islam. And then later on, you say that Islam and Eastern Christians have retained the original early Christian convention. It is the Western Christians who have broken with sacred tradition. So, Uh, I found that, uh, I read those couple pages uh, a few times. I found that very interesting. But can you talk more about this? Uh, One, how does modern Islam look like ancient Christianity? And two, in what ways has Western Christianity broken uh, from tradition?
2: Right. The the second quote there, uh, as I remember,
0: um,
2: that's specifically about the issue of fasting. I believe that's
0: right. Um, I believe that fasting was in there, yes. Yep.
2: Yeah. So, for example, um, okay, if you know anything about Islam today, you know that uh, one of the great um, practices of the faith, it's one of the five pillars of Islam, is uh, fasting. There's a month of uh, Ramadan. Hmm. and During that time, uh, people are not supposed to eat or drink anything between sunrise and sunset. Hmm. That is where did they get that strange idea from and that actually looks much more like lent as it would have been practiced in um the late antique times maybe fifth sixth seventh centuries by christians whether by christians in syria or mesopotamia or ethiopia and in fact if you look at um uh, Lent, as it's practiced by Ethiopian Christians today, it looks a lot more like uh, uh, like Ramadan. Now, uh, Lent in uh, for modern Christians is you know it's n- nothing like that. Mm. Um, people might I don't know give up chocolate or something, uh, but but the idea of that very severe practice—it's a Christian idea. It's a very ancient Christian idea that has been uh, almost wholly dropped by modern uh, christians at different stages by modern christians in the west hmm. um, there are some eastern christians who practice it still but you if you want to see that in operation uh then you look at uh you look at muslims hmm. uh if a sixth century syrian christian patriarch uh came into the modern world uh during lent he would be baffled by what christians were doing but he would absolutely understand what muslims were doing Hmm. so that's part of it The, the other thing is there are all sorts of practices that we think of today as islamic which muslims got directly from christians if you've ever seen muslims worshiping you know, they prostrate themselves. They mm. uh, they kneel. They uh, put their um, faces to the floor, and uh, you know, you get the call to prayer. It can be very moving. Um, when Islam arose, they did not do that, and Muslims initially were uh, amused and horrified to see Christian monks doing that. Mm. And they thought, you know, why on earth would anyone do that? And they kept on saying that until they started doing it themselves. So what you're seeing is a Christian worship practice that no longer exists among Christians in the West, but which is absolutely standard and routine for Islam.
3: Hmm.
0: Was there a, a time in, in history when the the two faiths, Islam and Christianity, uh, got along, like when there was a, maybe a, a real bond there?
2: Very much uh, at different times and places. It has... Uh, that sort of bond, that kind of overlap has, um, has come and gone in different eras. Mm. Um, but when you look at the early history of Islam, I mean, there's a lot of debate um, when, when you look at the, uh, the Quran itself. And um, for, for instance, the, the, there is an argument that when uh, the Quran talks about um, unbelievers, the distinction is not Muslims versus everyone else. It's monotheists versus everyone else. Hmm. Uh, so there, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of uh, conversation. There are some very uh, uh, you know civilized uh, discussions and debates between the two. So it's a it's a long and uh, and complex story. Um, and you know we, we certainly have to stay away from the stereotypes we certainly have about this kind of eternal enmity between the two.
0: Hmm. Well, what exactly what exactly happened to the Eastern? Church if it was such a big part of the faith, like right. way back then. What exactly happened to it?
2: Okay, let let me be careful with um, with some terms here. We tend to think of denominations as being like a more modern thing, and we assume that you know, back in early times there was like one, uh, one church in the late Roman Empire. In the early Middle Ages, there were there were several separate Christian churches or communities. And you could tell that because they did or did not commune with each other. They took communion. Hmm. Uh, so, for instance, a Catholic would not have taken communion with somebody from a church that was monophysite, which is one of the great you know, uh, theological views of the time, uh, would not have taken communion with somebody who is what we call an historian. Hmm. In the East, uh, you had some churches that were monophysite. You had some that were Nestorian. The Church of the East was probably the most widespread and successful of these churches. It was an Nestorian church, and it was uh, probably the greatest missionary church in history. Uh, it was based in Mesopotamia, but it had these huge missions reaching out through India and China. Hmm. Uh, so it was spanning Asia. It was sending people along the Silk Road. Um, the phrase, <laughs> what happened to it? Well, <laughs> it happened at different times. There was one series of catastrophes in the 14th and 15th centuries when there was a great age of global cooling. There were new and much more repressive uh, regimes around the world. Um, and that's the point at which the great churches of Asia shrunk from being these, you know, vast multi-million follower things to the very small bodies that they became later. Uh, Probably today, if you took all the heirs of the Church of the East, the Assyrians and the Chaldeans, there probably wouldn't be as many as half a million of them in the world.
0: So it was a a long process. It wasn't something that happened quickly.
2: That's right. Um, Mm -hmm. or, or, Or think about it as jogging along in a pretty good way for maybe a couple of hundred years. Then there'd be a series of catastrophes, which would re- reduce the numbers dramatically. Then they jog along for a few decades until the next catastrophe. Mm. But are some moments in particular. And, you know, I don't want really to give the impression that these churches are in any sense, um, are dead in most cases. So for instance, uh, uh, the Copts in Egypt probably still make up maybe eight or 10% of the population of Egypt. Mm. Um, And they've been living under Islamic rule now for uh, uh, maybe 1,400 years.
0: So spinning off of of that, and I think you might be able to have a good answer for this, something I've been thinking about a lot since I read your book is that, how does the Eastern tradition differ from the West in terms of its understanding of the cross, uh, the atonement, um, Christ? Like The West is very much centered around this idea of Jesus taking a, a punishment and Ah uh, God pouring out his anger concerning our uh, our sin. is that a common belief in the East, or is that more of like a westernized uh, understanding
2: well, like i said th- th- there are uh, there are multiple different uh, traditions. Um, w- one of the commonest uh, traditions in terms of understanding you know why Christ died is the theory that's called christus Victor mm. uh, and the idea there is that um, uh, through crucifixion, Christ defeated and conquered the, uh, the powers of evil, and that is such a powerful idea because that then provides a justification for theologies of spiritual warfare, for healing, for, uh, for exorcism, and that is probably the dominant theory of interpretation for all Christians right up until about the 12th century. Mm-hmm. And it 's only at that point that the West uh deviates, and then um, the reformation more more deviate again, but like i said there there are a great many different um, interpretations of that uh originally, one of the really divisive ideas was the question of the uh the person of christ uh you know what was the relationship between the human and the divine and you had these you know fierce battles between historians and monophysites, and they're always really over, uh, oversimplified and when you get to look at the theologies in detail, the differences are so slight that only really very skilled theologians can figure out what the differences are. Hmm. And um, in most cases, so-called Nestorians uh, are you know, very, very close to uh, the Western Catholic or Orthodox view.
0: Hmm. So last question, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, but in the book, you talk about how uh, the Christian story is much more diverse than commonly believed. And uh, you say it's much less a catalog of rigid orthodoxies enforced from above by the repressive mechanisms of the church and state. And you talk about how many different shades and varieties of Christianity once coexisted. And so I know that like my experience, I think a lot of our listeners experience is that uh, the church, the Western church is often very, um, I would say, closed off to other shades of of Christianity. So. Why do you think that is? And then number two, I would add to that and ask, do you have like a a vision for going forward for how the church can become more open, perhaps as it once was in terms of coexisting with other ideas and shades of the faith?
2: Well, in a sense, uh, I would have a similar answer to both uh, questions, which is in most of the uh, topics I'm discussing Hmm. uh, in the early history, in in Asia especially, Christians are flourishing outside the realm of government. And in fact, despite uh, government, you know, it's an interesting thought. We tend to think of the middle ages as being, you know, Christian States repressing heretics and Jews and so on. That's hmm. certainly in the West.
3: Hmm. But in Asia,
2: you have these tens of millions of Christians who exist in the Muslim governments through much of Christian history. The normal Christian experience is being part of an oppressed minority or oppressed majority. So if you don't have the power of government on your side, you can't be repressing other people. Mm. And it might be that in, um, in modern times, uh, the break between church and state means that of necessity, uh, churches have to act in an open market, a free market. They're not able to say, you know, everyone will believe this. Everyone will eat fish on Friday. Uh, they have to persuade. They have to uh, uh, lead by uh, example. Uh, you know, Methodists may or may not like Lutherans next door, but they they can't go and break their windows. the can? Uh, so um, co- coexistence uh, is. Part of what happens when you remove the role of state power, mm. and in that sense, we can learn a huge amount from looking at those uh, early and medieval Christians who who weren't just operating for a decade or two. I mean, they were operating for a thousand years as a very powerful church, uh, free of government, and also something which sounds very modern: coexisting with other religions. Mm. Uh, in Central Asia, we have lots of places where. Christians are very literally living next door to Muslims and Buddhists and Manichaeans. Uh, and often they're swapping ideas, they're swapping uh, manuscripts. Uh, we have a Christian bishop who helps Buddhists translate their scriptures into Chinese. Mm. Uh, and that's in the year 800. Uh, you know, that, that's not some uh, story from last year.
0: Mm. I came across that. that story was in your, in your book as well. Um, and one of the things I was thinking of when I read that story is, do you think uh, that the person who was helping translate those documents, did they have an underlying purpose? Because I've read in other places that um, in those instances, like they would help translate those documents, but they would then insert some of their own theology, unknowing to the people who they were helping. Is that, is that true? Is that false? Is there any yeah. claim to that?
2: i I don't think so, I think you might well get some unintentional mm. uh roles you know f- for example, um if you are translating anything into English, for example, uh, you can have one concept and you can translate it in three or four different ways. And you, uh, the way you translate it depends on your background, your your approach. Mm. But if you translate something in a particular way, then you, you send the text in a particular direction. That doesn't mean you're being cunning and conspiratorial. Mm. Um, you, you, you're just reading things as you understand. You know, there's a, uh, there's a famous uh, phrase in Latin which translates as uh, every translator is a traitor, creditor mm. um, traditor. And what that means is um, translators can never perfectly render uh, something from another language. They always put their own slant on it. Mm. Um, And I think what was uh, happening is, it's like I said about um, Christianity and Islam, Christianity and Buddhism, when they met in Asia, they discussed ideas. And in many parts of the world, the Church of the East used as its symbol a combination of the cross and the lotus hmm. the christian cross and the buddhist lotus the triumph over sin and the triumph over craving and ignorance
3: hmm.
2: uh, the, the idea for them was this is part of the same um measure uh, it's in china for example the uh, uh, the emperors uh, always thought that christianity was some kind of subsect of buddhism so it's a It's a different world, but, you know, whenever somebody looks at the modern world and says, oh, Christians have to interact with um, other religions, uh, my response would be, well, you know, you've got about a a, a thousand years of precedent you might want to catch up on first before you start trying to reinvent the wheel.
0: Mm. I think that's one of the things that fascinated me about about your work, is just that it it really puts this, uh, really magnifies the fact that it's possible to get along with people of other faith because we did it for a long time um, in those first thousand years, so that's something that i I value because I have a lot of friends I work work at Apple, so it's a very diverse place and I have a lot of friends who are of different religions, Buddhists, um, Islam, um, Hindu, and just a lot of people that for a long time, I thought you know I had no part in having a, a real solid relationship with these people, but now, after reading your work, other people's work, I'm really discovering that there is real bond and a real unity that we can have there. Terrific. Yeah, it's really good. Um before I let you go, do you have any um other maybe authors or any other thinkers who are doing work in this part of the in this part of things that maybe people can read up on, look into who might be interested in this kind of stuff?
2: Oh boy. Uh there are so many uh examples. I mean um I just say one book that I particularly uh, like uh one author I really like. Uh, there is a Uh, an English scholar uh, called Henrietta Harrison Hmm. and uh, she has done this uh, terrific history of uh, Christianity basically in one village in um, in China over the period of about 300 years and if you want to see how Christianity operated in this other uh, these other cultures took these different forms and her, uh, her main book is called, it's got a great title, The Missionary's Curse and Other Tales from a Chinese Catholic Village. Oh. You know, it's not necessarily the most important book on global Christian history, but it's just such an interesting example.
0: Awesome. Well, sir, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this was a very enlightening conversation for me. Uh, so thank you for dropping by. I, I appreciate it. All right. Good talking to you. Thanks. All right, have a good day. Bye-bye.
1: My future's calling me Looks like I'll finally Get to best my kick-ass dreams I'll have a tattoo of gold and talk to ladies And I want them more than a And all I'll do for several days Sitting on my ass, count my cash With a mama, oh, oh, mama, yes Oh, oh Coming home. I ain't coming home. Oh, you know, Daddy said the best to get in line somewhere. You're just tying, ticking, buying, till you realize your life ain't nothing left. I said, Paul, I'm working hard for that money. This I know. Well, Ain't got much to show yet, yeah. but to live my life without regret. I'll have a tattoo of gold and talk to ladies and I'll want them more than magic. And all I'll do for simple days, sitting on my ass, count my cash with them, mama, oh oh, mama, yes, oh oh. home to my mom. we a we go.